Hi. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. glad that you are here with us this morning. Looking forward to continuing our series, uh, Fixer Upper. If you're watching online, of course, we want to thank you for joining us. And if you're just picking us up later in the week, not watching us live, thanks for, thanks for just popping over to YouTube and, and taking a watch what's going on. So last week, Doug introduced our, our series to us, our Fixer Upper series. And in this series, we're looking at four uh, key doctrines, four key things that really take part as part of our salvation, uh, where God is fixing us up. He's repairing the damage that sin has done. And it's also very important that we looking at, as we look at these doctrine series, to realize the foundation that we need to build our faith upon. Doug mentioned this last week, and I, and I want to mention it again. As we, as we think about doctrine, uh, a lot of times when we hear that word, that we're going to do a doctrine series, or we're going to be studying doctrine, a lot of times there's this intimidation factor that comes along. There's this, this, this thought, man, that, that doctrine is maybe for, for the deep thinkers, for the academics, and is there any, really anything that, that I can grab out of doctrine? Is there anything that, that I can really understand and apply to my life? And if we think about doctrine and we look at the very basic definition of what doctrine is, doctrine, simply put, is teaching. And when we think about a doctrine series, what, we, what we're looking at is we're just looking at the foundational teachings of Scripture. The things that Scripture teaches about God, about ourselves, uh, and it doesn't have to be way over our heads. It doesn't have to be an academic exercise that's, that's super exhausting. It's something that we can just look into Scripture and say, what does the Bible teach about this? And it's so important that we do that and that we set our foundation on the things of Scripture. Because today there are, there are so many times that, and Doug, you didn't mention this again last week, that we kind of see people building their own faith. Well, I feel that this is the way it is. I think this is the way it is. But what foundation are they, are they building that thinking on? In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells a parable about two builders. There was the, the wise builder, and he built his house upon a rock. And Jesus said when the storms came, the the storms beat against that house and it stood firm because it was built on a solid foundation. And there was another builder who built on a foundation of sand. And when the storms came and beat against that house, it collapsed because it didn't have a firm foundation under it. And so it is super important, whether you're studying out the Christian faith to see if it's legit or whether you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that we so regularly go back and just look at what are the basic teachings of the Bible so that when the storms come, our faith, our house of faith doesn't collapse and that we know that what we've built on is sure and certain and we don't have to think, man, is this legit? Is this for real? And so that's what we're, we're looking at this series. That's why we're looking. We just want to go back to some of these basic foundations of the faith. And today, I have the privilege of speaking to you on, on this, the doctrine of justification. 
As I think about this, this, uh, this whole concept, this whole truth of justification, uh, there's an event that happened about seven years ago in our life that just kept coming back to my mind, and I think it fits well as an illustration of, of justification. I was uh, working at People's Church at the time, and I was uh, running the evening service on, on a Sunday evening, and that service ran from 6 until 7. And so it was about 10 to 7, and we had broken off into our small groups for prayer, and my phone started to ring. And I kind of, it was on silent, don't worry. Um, but, you know, I, I looked and I looked and it was the caller ID from home. It was Amanda's cell. And I was like, that's weird that she's calling me. And I'll be honest, I was a little annoyed. She knew what time church was over. Why was she calling? And I thought it may not have been her, but it was the boys, because quite often they would call and say, can you pick McDonald's up on the way home? right? And I'm thinking, guys, church isn't over. Just give me a few more minutes, and then I'll be able to, you know, talk about whatever you need to. But anyway, I went out in the foyer, and I answered the phone in my loving way, and, um, and Parker says, oh, he's on the other end of the line, and he said, Dad, he said, I think mom's broken her ankle. And I was like, what do you mean? What happened? And so uh, they had been at home, and Parker decided that he wanted to go for a swim. And about five minutes drive from our place, uh, there was this nice little trail that led down to the river. You walked down along there just a little bit, and then there was a beautiful swimming hole, about a 15-foot cliff jump, and it was a place that we went to quite often. So Parker and Amanda had driven down there, and walked. they were walking in, and they were crossing just down near the bottom of the hill. They were crossing a little footbridge, and they had little, little wooden slats that ran across the, the footbridge. And somehow, as Amanda was stepping across, she managed to get her ankle stuck in between the slats, and she fell, and she, she snapped her ankle. And that became quite an adventure for them, because Parker had to carry her out from the bottom of the hill all the way back up to the car. And then they get to the car, and there's another dilemma. Um, the car that they had brought to the, the trailhead was the, the standard car, the, the manual transmission. And Parker had just gotten his beginners, and he was trying to learn standard, but whenever we went out together, he would come back and he'd say, this is stupid. Why would anybody want to drive that way? He just hated trying to drive the standard. And I'd always be trying to tell him, you can just feel when the clutch engages. He goes, I don't even know what you're talking about, you know. And so they get back to the car, and Amanda looks at Parker, and she said, Parker, I can't drive. You're going to have to drive. And he's in his bare feet. And so... He's like, whatever, he hops into the car, and let me tell you, he executed a perfect three-point turn, left a little bit of rubber at an intersection, but other than that, he made it all the way home and never had trouble driving the standard again. It was, it was a God thing, I don't know. But so, so they get home, and, and part they call me, and so we take Amanda to the hospital, and sure enough, the ankle's broken, both bones are broken. And uh, they put a temporary, temporary cast. And yeah, you can see that, yeah. So they put a temporary cast in there. And we're sitting in the doctor's office. We met with the surgeon. And the surgeon said this. He said, I can fix, I can fix up this, this thing. We're going to have to do some surgery. So we went and had the, had the surgery done. And then we're sitting in the office after. And he said, well, here's the work that I've done inside. Right? Put a screw up through, through one. And then the plate and a few screws in the other. And about four to six weeks, you're going to be fine. And you might think, well, what does that have to do with the doctrine of justification? What I want us to understand today as we think about justification, justification, just like the surgeon said to Amanda, I've done the work and you're going to be well. God says to us when we place our faith and trust in what Jesus Christ has done, I have done the work and not you're going to be well, but you are well. 
And so justification is God's declaration over us that we are right with God. Charles Riley, he defines it in this way. A justification is to declare righteous. Both the Greek and Hebrew words, so both Old Testament and New Testament words, mean to announce or pronounce a favorable verdict, to declare righteous. Justification is God declaring that he has changed you in such a way that you are now in an eternal, unchangeable, right relationship with him. And so for the rest of this morning, what I want to do is I just want to dig into that a little bit more. I want to look at this one who declares us righteous. And then I want us to look at the response. What should we do as a result of this declaration being made over us? Or what should we do as a result of this, just, uh, this declaration being made available to us? So let's pray, and then we'll get into the Word of God together. Father, I just want to thank you for this morning. I just thank you for this amazing truth, this amazing teaching that we can be made right with you. Father, I just want to thank you for what Jesus accomplished for us. I thank you for the fact that we just simply need to believe, to receive what he has done. Lord, I thank you, as the song said this morning, that you are holy, that there is no one like you. I thank you, as the song said again this morning, that Jesus paid it all, and that we owe all to him. And so today, I just want to pray that as we are drawn to you through the scriptures, Lord, that that again, it won't just be knowledge, it just won't be greater understanding, but it'll be knowledge and understanding that's applied to a deeper relationship with you, a deeper obligation just to live out a life that is, is so grateful for what you've accomplished. Just thank you in your name. Amen. So as we look at this doctrine of, of justification, we want to look at the one who has declared us righteous. And we want to look at, at who God is, and, and in particular, one key attribute of God, which is his holiness. When I was in Bible school, I had to do a, a paper on the attributes of God and went through a number of different ones. But when I got to this whole fact of God's holiness, it just it blew me away. It drew me to him and yet also kind of intimidated me a little bit in ways that, that, that other doctrines maybe had, not that any of those are, are attributes, not that any of those are lesser, but just his holiness is, is absolutely amazing. God's holiness is, is the fact that he is other, that he is above all, and that he is morally pure, can't do anything wrong. First Samuel chapter 2, we see Hannah. She's, she's at the temple and she's, or the tabernacle, and she's praying. And she's worshiping God for answered prayer in her life. And this is what she says. 1 Samuel 2, verse 2, it says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. And so to, today, as we, as we think about God and we think about his holiness, we just, I want you to understand that, that he is other. He is above all. That he is totally unique and totally without flaw. If you turn over to Psalm 99, you can have it in your Bibles or on your phone or it'll be up on the screen, but Psalm 99, we're just going to look at a couple different sections from this psalm. The first one, first three verses, says this, The Lord reigns, let the people tremble, or the, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion, he is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name, holy is he. And this first aspect of holiness that I want us to see is that his authority and the fact that he is over all, that he rules over all. In fact, as, as you look, it says, the Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the chair, let the earth quake. There's this awesome power about God. There's this awesome otherness that is, that is so amazing and yet also very intimidating. 
And we can see throughout Scripture many times as people encounter God, there's this, there's this, you know, this awesomeness, there's this, wow, that's amazing, and yet that amazement turns into fear. And let's look at one uh, example for, for a moment and from Luke chapter 5. This is an interesting miracle that, that Jesus does. He comes along the shore of the Sea of Galilee one day, and Peter and the fishermen, they had been out fishing all night. They're, in the, they're on the shore now cleaning their nets for the, for the next night. And Jesus comes along, and, and he says, you know, hey, there's a number of people following me. Look, it's going to be kind of crowded. Peter, can I use your boat if you just push that back from the shore a little bit, and I'll, I'll teach from the boat. And so Peter does that, and, and they, they, they just push off from shore a bit, and Jesus teaches. I don't know how long he taught for, uh, but he teaches. And when he was done, he says to Peter, he said, Peter, he said, throw your net over the side of the boat. You know, and Peter had chosen to follow Jesus, and he was, he was uh, you know, obedient to Jesus. But I'm sure part of him is thinking, okay, this carpenter rabbi is telling me to throw my nets over the side of the boat. I'm a fisherman. He's a carpenter. We fished all night. What's the point in doing this? And he kind of does say that in, in verse 6. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and we took nothing. He's like, really, what's the point of doing this, Jesus? But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. You think about this for a second, and you think about Peter's reaction. What would have his reaction been? Number one, maybe the carpenter knows what he's talking about. That might have been one of the reactions that he had. Number two, maybe he was thinking, what a haul. I mean, we fished all night, didn't get anything. They were catching fish for livelihood. You're thinking, man, what? He may have been thinking, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for this provision. Thank you for, for all that you've done. But it wasn't, it wasn't that reaction either. It wasn't just this gratefulness. Peter says this in Luke chapter 5, verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. As Peter encountered God's holiness, his power, his authority, when, when Jesus just flexed, just, just that little bit, showed a, just a little glimpse of his power, Peter looked and said, wow, I'm not even worthy to be in your presence. And that's the amazing thing about God's holiness is that when we encounter it, it's awesome, and yet it's a little bit like, oh, what do we do with this? I don't, I don't deserve to be in this presence. As we continue on in Psalm 99, we see this. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. So that first section of the Psalms really focused on God's authority. And the second one, as we look at it, it, it shifts over to looking at his purity. He loves justice. You have established equity. You are fair. You have done what is right, and you are righteous. You, are, you do what is right and pure. John, one of Jesus' disciples, takes that a little bit further. In 1 John 1, 5, he said, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. See, God is free from any hint of sin and evil, and he's absolutely pure. And whatever men, whenever men compare themselves to him, they are quickly exposed. Their sin is quickly exposed. Let's just look at two other men in Bible, and we can see how this, how this happens. And we're looking at some really key men of the Bible here. The first one I want to look at is Job. And Job, is, as, as you begin the book of Job, it begins with this statement. The Holy Spirit inspired this statement about Job. Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. 
know, that's a, that's a pretty good um, nod from God, isn't it? You know, if, if that epitaph could be on my life, or if, even if that statement could be made about me in my life right now, that would be amazing. Think about this, God saying this about you. A man or woman who is blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. I think if we encountered a person like this, we'd probably have a lot of respect for them. We would probably go to them for wisdom. We would probably just kind of revere them a little bit and say, man, that's, that's somebody that I want to be like. That is, that is a goal in my life to, to become spiritual, to become godly like they are. And here's this interesting thing. From that statement, Job chapter 1, verse 1, there's this crazy encounter. I mean, if you have the time to read the book of Job this week, you'll see this crazy encounter where, where Job encounters God. And a number of chapters later, 42 chapters later, Job and God are having this dialogue. And Job says this, he said in in 42 verses 5 and 6, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This amazing thing, this, this very godly man. And he has this encounter with God, and when he sees God, he says, man, I, I, I don't even like what I see in myself. And I need to repent. I need to ask God's forgiveness. I need to turn away from this sinfulness because my life compared to God's is so far from pure. It is so far from holy. We have another example of that in, in Isaiah. Again, Isaiah is a prophet of God, and Isaiah was probably, I mean, he's, he's prophesying, and we don't see any record in Scripture of where Isaiah just turned from God or disobeyed him. He seemed to be a very faithful man, one who loved God, was obedient to God. And then one day, he encounters God as well, and it says this in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And again, Here's this encounter that Isaiah has with God. He sees God seated on his throne. He sees him in that position of authority. And then he sees him as the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy. And this is, this is like in our English language of big, bigger, biggest. Like what the angels are saying is that God is the holiest. There is no one that compares to him. Again, a good and obedient man encountering a pure and holy God. And the reaction we can see in Isaiah 6, 5 says this, And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And again, what Isaiah is saying here is as he compares himself, as the veil is pulled back and he sees God's holiness in comparison to his life, he's like, man, I deserve God's judgment. That, that word woe was what the prophets would use to pronounce judgment. So he's like, woe is me. I deserve God's judgment because I am unclean. I am sinful. And again, as we, as we think about these men, Peter and, and Job and, and Isaiah, and we think about them and we, we think these guys are the cream of the crop. These are people that we would strive to attain to be like. We would want to be like in their spiritual walk. And yet, when they compare themselves to God, when God showed him his holiness, they were like, wow, I am so far from that holiness. I deserve God's judgment. I don't even like what I see within myself. I don't even deserve to be in God's presence. And yet, 
there's this amazing truth in Scripture that we're going to be getting to. Romans 3.23 does tell us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means that we, we fail to attain that standard that God has set, his holiness. We're separated. Isaiah says this years after he encountered God in the temple. He said, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our, unrighteous, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. As we think about, as we think about our, our acts of righteousness, as we think about the things that we do to please God, or we try to do in our own strength to please God, you know, it's basically, Isaiah is saying, it's like, kind of like a dirty, stinky pile of laundry compared to the holiness of God. That's kind of discouraging. You think, man, I'm trying real hard. I'm, I'm working real hard, and yet you're telling me that all it's going to be is a stinky pile of laundry? What's, what's the good news here? Why, why would I come to church just to get beat down? Well, you have to get that news to understand how great the news of the gospel is. How great the news of the atonement that Doug spoke on last week, how great the news of justification truly is. When we sat in the surgeon's office with, with, with the man as, when talking about her ankle, the diagnosis was pretty clear. See, the x-ray showed that her ankle was broken. This before surgery. It showed that, she, that her ankle was broken. And the doctor said to us, the surgeon said, I can fix this. I can make this right. I can set that bone. I'll put the hardware in there, and, and you, you, know, you will be able to have good use of that ankle again. We had a choice there. We had the choice to say, okay, we're going to let you do the surgery. Or we could have gone home and I said, I'll just tug on her ankle and see what we can do with it, right? I could have tried to fix it on my own and the marriage would have ended, I'm sure, in that one tug. But, um, you know, it, it, we could have tried to do it on our own strength when we didn't even have the ability to do it. So this is the message of the gospel. What we are unable to do, Christ is able to do. God is able to do because of what Christ has done for us. Last week, Doug reminded us that Jesus was the atonement for our sin. In that atonement, in his death on a cross, he not only took the punishment for our sin, but he offered, also offered his righteousness, his perfection, as our covering up on our behalf. There's two passages of scripture that we'll have up on the screen here in just a second. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And I think they cover two very essential truths that we see here in the gospel. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. see... Jesus' death on the cross accomplished everything we needed to be made right with God. All we need to do, all that we can do, I mean, all of our good works, they're just a pile of stinky rags. We can't earn God's favor. We can't earn his forgiveness. All that we can do is believe, to place our faith in what Christ has done on our behalf. And God says, I will do the work in you. I will fix what is broken. I will restore what is broken. I will make you new. Romans 3 gives us an amazing description of what happens. Um, it's, a, it's a longer passage of Scripture. I'm going to make a couple comments as we work through. But this Romans chapter 3 gives this beautiful picture of what Christ accomplishes for us, what God accomplishes for us when we believe in Jesus Christ. Romans 3, 21 to 26. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. 
And here we see God made this promise, and, and he said the law was, was to show us really our sinfulness and, and to provide a, a temporary covering for sin, but that was never the full intention. That was never the means of restoration. The means of restoration was something outside of the law, and again, as we talked about in our anticipation series, this was something that God had planned before he even made the world. It says we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, and we, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in His grace, freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed His life, shedding His blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, but he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in him. The moment that we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ the record of our sin is removed and the perfect righteousness of Jesus is placed on our account. In that same moment, God makes a declaration over us. He justifies us and he declares that we are made right with him. This is an amazing thing from God. Earlier in the, in the service, Laura read us the, 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 the story of the prodigal son. And in that story, we see that the son rejected the father. He said, Father, I want the inheritance, which is equivalent to saying, Father, I wish you were dead. So I can have what, what I will, your, your income, whatever, your money. And, and, and the father generously, graciously uh, gives the son the inheritance. And the son takes that and he wastes it in, in all kinds of stupidity, trying to find satisfaction, trying to find fulfillment in all kinds of foolish things. And when the money runs out and everybody abandons him, he comes back to his senses. And he says, you know what, being part of my father's house, even as a servant, is way better than the decisions, than the choices that I am making right now. I'm going to go home and I'm going to, I'm going to beg my father to not let me be a son. I don't deserve that. I don't, I don't deserve to be welcomed back into the family. I don't want to be considered a son again. But if I could even just be a servant in his house, I would be far better off than I am now. And he went back with this attitude, but the father had other plans, and we see this um, in Luke 15. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And he began to celebrate. You just think about this, this reunion, this, this, this statement that the father's making. As the son returns, the son's saying, look, I'm not worthy to be your son. Just let me just serve in your house. The father's like, no way. He said to the servants, right away, quickly, right now, bring the robe, bring the clothes. No longer is he going to have, he had hired himself out to feed pigs. No longer is he going to have the, the, the clothes of a servant. He's going to have the clothes of a son. Bring my ring, bring my ring that shows that he has the authority of the father in, in, in the household. Bring that ring, put it on his finger. And bring him some shoes, not bare feet, not sandals like, like the servants, but bring him shoes. He is part of the family. He was dead and he is alive. And this is a reason to celebrate. 
And the celebration begins, and, 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 and their son, the older son, who had stayed in the father's household, who had been obedient, he's, he hears this party, and he's wondering what's going on, and finds out what's going on. He's not happy at all. He's like, what's going on? How could, how could the father do this? And, you know, how could he welcome him back? How could he kill this calf that's really my rightful property? How could he do that and, and celebrate with this son who wasted his life? And the father and the son, the older son, had this confrontation. And again, it says this, he was fitting to, it was fitting to celebrate and to be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Here's this beautiful picture of the father in front of all of the servants. He restores the son and he says, this my son was dead but now is alive. He's lost and he's found. And then when the brother complained, he says, this your brother was lost and is found, was dead, and is alive. Could you imagine how powerful those statements were for this younger son? Could you imagine as he hears his father say to the servants, this is my son, not my servant, this is my son, fully restored. Could you imagine how powerful those words were when he said to the older brother, and the younger brother may have heard about it later on, and he said, this is your brother, fully accepted into the family. Who can argue in that household with the father's declaration? He is in authority. He's in charge of the house. And he is saying to everybody around, this is my son. He is fully accepted, fully loved, fully welcomed. It's such a beautiful picture of what justification is. It's God declaring to everyone that we are his children. And he is holy. There's nobody like him. There's nobody more powerful than him. And he is making that declaration over us. For those of us that, that know Jesus Christ as our Savior, that, that needs to bring so much assurance to us. So much assurance. And, and I mean, so many times we try to earn God's love. We try to earn his favor. Where if I just work a little bit harder, if I just do a little bit more, then, then he'll like me better as a son. That's not the case. We want to live. We want to obey. We want to do those things because it pleases him, but not for his acceptance. He's already accepted us, not on our works, but on the works that Jesus has done on our behalf, dying on the cross, offering up his righteousness. And we need, as believers in Jesus Christ, to just rest in that assurance, not try to earn his favor, but to live a life of just like, I am a child of God, and I get to show other people what that is like. We need to live in the excitement of that. And if you're here today and you've not placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, maybe there's a, there's a weariness in you. It's just like I can't seem to earn God's favor. No matter what I do, everything seems to fall short. Everything that I've tried seems to fall short. The invitation for you today is this, is just to accept what has been provided for you. Like we did in the doctor's office. We had to say, okay, doc, you're going to fix this ankle. We trust you. You need to say to God, God, there's nothing I can do. And I've realized that. Would you please fix me? And because of the atonement, because Jesus died and took our sin and offered his righteousness on our behalf, when we place our faith and trust in this, Jesus makes a declaration. God makes a declaration. You are mine. And nothing can change that declaration. Those of us that know Jesus, we have all experienced, I'm sure, those times where we have that little nagging voice 
that says, how can you call yourself a child of God? How can you, how can you say that you're God's child? Look at the things that you have done. Look at, the, look at the way that you behaved even with your family this week. Look at the, look at the things that you watched this week. Look at the things that you, you just, you know, you, the ungratefulness that's in your life for the things that God has provided. And, and the list could go on and on. This little nagging voice, how can you call yourself a child of God? And, and really, what's the source of that? We see this in Revelation chapter 12. And John, the apostle, gives this a picture of, of a future event, but he also helps us understand what is currently going on. It says this, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. It's the source of those nagging feelings. Number one, it can just be our own lack of faith. Number two, it can be Satan bringing these accusations against us. How can you call yourself a Christian? And not only does he bring those accusations against us, he brings them before the throne of God. Say, man, did you see Bruce this week? What a colossal mess. How can you call him so? How can he, you call him your child? Why don't you just give him the boot? Get him out of your family. You know, and, and, and again, guys, when Satan's bringing these accusations before God, this is probably the only time in his, in his existence that he's not lying. He doesn't have to lie about the things that we do. We give him lots of stuff to work with. We sin on the daily. And he brings those accusations before God. I want to show you a verse in, in Romans chapter 8 because this is just an amazing, this is an amazing chapter. If you don't have time to read the 42 chapters of Job, read Romans 8 today. Read it this week. This is an amazing chapter of Scripture. But Romans 8, verse 33 says this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Guys, I like simple things. I like it when things are simple. And this verse is so simple. Who can bring any charge against us? Who is going to come to God and say, Oh, God, by the way, you missed this clause here on eternal salvation and Bruce is out. You missed this point. You know, you, you just, you just kind of messed up. And, but no, no, no. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. As we think back to the holiness, to the authority of God, that there is no one greater than him. No matter what the accusation that comes, God is always the one that says, yeah, but I've declared them righteous because of what Jesus has done. See, there's no accusation against us that will stand because the justification, the declaration that God has made on us is not on our performance, it's on our acceptance of what Christ has done. Therefore, nothing can separate us from him. No charge against us will stand. God has declared us, he has justified us, and nothing will change that. You know, take a couple look. We're just gonna pop through a couple scriptures, guys, so just pay attention to the reference because I'm not going to go in order, all right? Psalms 103, 8 to 12, it says this, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are higher, uh, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Jeremiah 31, 34. And no longer shall each one say, uh, teach his neighbor and, say, uh, and each to his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. And then pop back to Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my, for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. 
It's an amazing thing. God doesn't sweep those sins under the rug. He doesn't pretend that we didn't do them. He unleashed the full wrath of the, against those sins on his son, Jesus. And Jesus took that punishment and offered up his righteousness so that when we, by faith, we can be justified by faith, believe that Jesus has paid it all, and all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That's God's declaration over you. Not based on your merit, not based on your worth, but based on the merit of Jesus Christ. You are accepted. You are a child of God. And nothing can change that. So how do we respond to that? Number one, we just need to live in gratitude for what God has done. But my goodness, that's such good news. We need to be sharing that with those around us. We're sharing with them the peace, the assurance, the comfort of knowing that life isn't performance-based. Being accepted by God isn't performance-based. It's faith-based. It's just accepting what Jesus has done. You know the peace of that. You've experienced the peace of that. How could we keep that to ourselves? How could we bottle that up inside? We need to, to let that out and to share with people that they can be at peace with God. And when they are at peace with God, they can have peace in life even when everything seems to go all to pieces. That they can stand because their foundation is built on the rock of Jesus Christ. So today, as we close, I just, I trust. Ah, this has been an encouraging message to you. I hope that I trust that it's been an exciting message in the sense that, man, we are set. We are secure in Jesus Christ. That doesn't give us a license to go and do whatever we want to do. We want to live out gratitude for what God has done for us. We want to live in obedience to him so that other people can see how amazing being justified is. We want to live in obedience to him. So I hope that today has challenged you just to live out gratitude. And today, if you don't know Jesus, if you've not accepted by faith what Christ has done for you, the invitation from this church, the invitation more importantly from God is this. Would you place your faith and trust in Christ? Would you accept the fact that all your good deeds are just like a pile of stinky laundry? But that Jesus has offered his perfection on your behalf. That he has been punished for the sins that you have and will commit. That you simply just need to believe in him. Place your trust in him. And God says he will declare you righteous. He will make you right. Let's pray together. Father, I just want to thank you for today. I just thank you for this amazing doctrine, this amazing teaching in the Bible. That when we believe in your son, Jesus, we are declared right with you. And thank you, God, that no one can change that declaration. Father, we just thank you for your holiness, for your power, for your purity. Thank you that even though we could never measure up to it, never deserve to be in your presence, because what Jesus Christ has done, we can be welcomed into your presence and to know that we are children of God. So I just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.